Well, if you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to take it and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Exodus, and we'll be in chapter 2 this morning looking at verses 1 through 10. Exodus chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 will be our passage this morning. And with the Word of God open before us, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this privilege we have to hear your Word, to learn from it, to see Christ in it, to apply it to our hearts and lives that we might be as those who walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work. Help us to see Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. This is the word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Well, we come now to the birth of Moses, who is called elsewhere in Scripture the Redeemer of Israel. In Acts chapter 7, verse 35, you'll know the scene. Stephen is giving his defense of his uh, love for the law, love for uh, even the temple of God. Uh, and he calls Moses the ruler and redeemer of Israel. He's a type of Christ, in other words. He's a forerunner of Jesus in the Old Testament. We're meant to see things in Moses' life that draw our attention forward beyond this lesser redeemer to the ultimate redeemer, Jesus Christ. He will do things and say things and accomplish things and fulfill things that draw us toward Jesus. And it's important that we have this in mind as we begin to look at his life now, especially as we start with his birth. And before we get any further, I want us to turn back just a couple pages to Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, Jacob is blessing his sons. You'll recall the scene, he's at the end of his life. He asks for his children to come near him and assemble them together that they may receive his blessing prior to his departure. And notice in verses 5 through 7, Jacob addresses two of his sons, Simeon and Levi. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. 
O my glory, be not joined to their company, for in anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. That's not exactly the uh, blessing that they were hoping for, I'm sure. And it leaves us wondering what good could possibly come from Simeon and Levi after this sort of final word from their father Jacob, who was Israel. And yet here we have in Exodus 2, verse 1, a double dose of Levites. We have a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. These are not blessed people, but rather they had been disgraced in Jacob's word to them because of their past sins. And we would expect then at the opening of Exodus, we have things looking down. Joseph's dead and the king who knew and loved Joseph is gone and the people are now oppressed and their children are being killed. And now we have this double dose of Levites, the last of which we heard they were receiving a curse rather than a blessing from their father. This should signify something bad to us. It should alert us that this child will be trouble that his portion will be scattered, as Jacob said, that he will not bring glory, but rather shame. And yet we know that this is Moses, the ruler and redeemer of Israel, don't we? He's the great prophet of the Old Testament, the lawgiver of Mount Sinai. And this is because God in his providence and in his perfect way often uses the least expected people to do the most exceptional, unexpected things. Moses was born from ancestors who had committed grievous sins, resulting in a shameful inheritance from their father. Bear in mind that Jesus was born of sinful flesh. Think of his genealogy. All of the people listed there, which we looked at over the Christmas season. The worst kings of Israel. Ruth the Moabitess. Solomon, the daughter of the adulterous affair between David and Uriah's wife. And yet here we see that God uses the least expected sources to accomplish his unexpected salvation. He uses the most obscure and the least likely, the shameful and foolish things to confound the wise, in other words. Now, if we only saw things from the perspective of Pharaoh, the Israelites are growing in number and I hate them, I want to kill them, or the perspective of Jacob, Levi and Simeon were sinful, so I offer them nothing but a curse for their future. Or from the perspective of Jesus' genealogy, what good could possibly come from a line such as this? We might be given over to despair. It doesn't seem like anything good is going on at all in God's world at this stage in history, but it's really all about perspective, isn't it? It's all about perspective. How we approach circumstances, how we handle fears, how we live in this world is a matter of perspective. And the question for us this morning is, from whose perspective are you viewing life? From whose perspective do you approach life? From whose perspective do you handle trials? From whose perspective are you awaiting the outcome of your current circumstances? There's really two perspectives we can take aren't there? There's an earthly perspective. The earthly perspective, which sees things only down here, or the heavenly perspective, which understands God's rule and reign over all things. It's as one poet said, two men looked out from behind the prison bars. One only saw the mud, but the other saw the stars. 
If you've ever driven through Nebraska, you'll know that Nebraska has only one thing going for itself. Corn. That's it. As you drive through Nebraska, it's hundreds and hundreds of miles of corn. And if you're driving through Nebraska for any length of time, you'll know that there's corn everywhere. And sometimes it feels like the whole world is nothing but a cornfield. But from outer space, you can see Iowa. You can see Missouri and Kansas and Wyoming and South Dakota and Colorado and the Platte River. And you can see the lights from the cities hundreds of miles away. And you know that there's more to see than what you can observe from three feet above the ground. It's all about perspective. And this morning, I want us to consider the perspective we take on life. What informs it and how does it inform our lives? This text commends to us three things about a perspective that places God on the throne. A God-honoring perspective has three attributes to it. First of all, a God-honoring perspective is informed by faith. A God-honoring perspective is informed by faith. It's also exercised in wisdom. A God-honoring perspective is exercised in wisdom. And lastly, a God-honoring perspective yields to providence. It yields to God's providence. Look at how it's informed by faith. Consider the perspective of Moses' parents. Here they are in the midst of persecution. The last chapter ended with Pharaoh commanding all his people, every son that's born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The people were enslaved. They had taskmasters, it says in verse 11, set over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Remember verse 14, they made their lives bitter with hard service. And they made them work ruthlessly as slaves. This is the setting in which Moses' parents, these two Levite people, find themselves. Death and destruction all around. The world couldn't be any worse. And yet, what do they choose in the midst of this? In the midst of this, what do they choose? They choose marriage. They choose family. They choose to obey God. They choose to pursue God's design for His people, even when they might have to forego safety and security. Here we see them acting as God's people ought to act when the opportunity presents itself. They marry within the household of God, and they conceive and bore children according to God who opens the womb, and they experience the joy of family and the blessing of children, even when life was at its worst. Now, this is so contrary to our self-centered motto of the 21st century, my life first, live my best life, pursue my happiness and my best self. Many, even within the church, are foregoing, by choice, having children, because the world seems like such a dark place. I can't tell you how many people I've heard make the statement, how can anyone bring into a, a child into this world today with all of the racism and poverty and war and sickness and fear? What's the point? Who could do such a thing? Well, of course, those who have faith in God can. Now, I'm not speaking of a couple's ability to have children, but the intentional decision to forego having children because the world is a bad place is not, is not a decision rooted in the faith that God's people should have. 
It's not just faith in God today that he will provide and protect, but it's faith in God's ultimate plan to redeem a people for himself from every tribe and language and nation and to bring them into his eternal glory. All of us, I'm sure, desire to see God receive all the glory that he deserves forever, don't we? That's what we want for our great God. Think of what he's done for us. He saved us from our sins. We want him to receive glory We want heaven filled with men and women and children who will worship him for all eternity. And we go about accomplishing that by evangelizing the world, by sending the Carters and the Prabakers and the Kimmins and others out into the world to witness to those who don't know Jesus Christ. And perhaps you do that in your workplace or in your neighborhood as you meet with your closest neighbors or you engage in conversations about the gospel with your coworkers. But God has a very special design for accomplishing this purpose, and that's through the faithful rearing of covenant children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The simplest way that the church grows is through the addition of faithful covenant children within herself. And so Moses' parents' faith meant that they pursued marriage and family in spite of the threat, in spite of the difficulties around them, in spite of the situation in the world, because covenant children are a part of the glory of God. And so for the Christian, the blessing of having children is not just for us, it's for the Lord. It's for the Lord. But of course, the situation that Moses' parents were in was legitimately difficult. Baby boys were actually being killed. They were actually taking infant children and throwing them into the Nile River to kill them. And after hiding Moses for three months, they had to do something. You can imagine being a parent, many of you are right now, of young children, of infants, and you know the noises they make, sometimes uncontrollably, unconsolably. Try hiding a child for three months when your neighbors are ready to give them up to death. And so they had to do something, and of course we read that when she could no longer hide him, she made a a basket or literally an ark for him of bulrushes, and she covered it with pitch, and she put him in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Now, uh, Arthur Pink makes a comment about this scene. He says, much of a sentimental nature has been written on these verses, that it's the the mother love of Moses' mom and the beauty of the child which caused her to act as she did. She loved him so much and, and she just couldn't bear to, to see something bad happen to him. But he says, this will not stand the test of Scripture. The Bible informs us that it was neither affection nor infatuation, but faith which was the mainspring of her action. If we were to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 23... Hebrews 11, you know, is that great hall of faith in the New Testament. It lists some names that we're quite shocked to see in here, aren't we? Like Samson. But in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23, it tells us, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. You see, it was his parents' faith that caused them to hide him. And because they saw the child was beautiful, they were not afraid of the king's edict. It was by faith that they acted the way that they did. In spite of the danger, in spite of the threat, Moses' parents responded in faith. This is the sort of faith that Abraham had to take his son, his only son of promise, and put him on the altar 
willing to kill him because he believed God would raise him back to life because of the covenant promises that God had made. It was this kind of faith that enabled Moses' mother to put him in the ark and set him free in the river because she knew that God was good. Now, she didn't know that her son would be the redeemer of Israel. Perhaps she, be, she was aware of the promise that God had made to Abraham back in Genesis 15 that his people, his descendants, would be enslaved for 400 years in a land that wasn't theirs, and they'd be, they would leave that land full of great possessions. Maybe she knew the time was coming, and it was drawing near. Perhaps this baby, perhaps my son, is the one that will accomplish this. We don't know if she thought that, but she did know God. She knew his character. She knew his goodness. She knew what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 68, you are good and you do good. That's who God is. And all of our decisions by faith are informed by that perspective, aren't they? God is good and he does good. And faith says that everything that happens then from birth to death and before and after are informed by his goodness. And so we can act in faith even when the world around us seems to be intent on our destruction, and in Moses' case, literally. So where do you need to exercise faith in God today? In what circumstance, what situation regarding what person do you need faith like this? Is it a wayward child that you've been praying for for year after year after year? Perhaps it's an unbelieving parent or parents who mock your faithful attendance in worship. It might even be a spouse who you feel the absence of each Lord's Day as you sit here near your friends and not next to the one whom you love the most. Maybe it's a stubbornly agnostic coworker or a harsh and domineering parent. Where do you need to remember that God is good and does good and causes all things to work together for the good of his people and for his own glory? Perhaps you can't see how God will work things out in our culture. It's going from bad to worse out there, it seems. The LGBTQ agenda, abortion running rampant, racism, war, inflation. How can these things possibly be redeemed by God? How can the church survive in light of the growing pressures from our culture, what will happen to the freedoms of our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren? And so many decide not to have any because they don't want to leave them an inheritance like the world we have right now. Do you need to be reminded that this is the same God who sent his people to Egypt, who raised up this Pharaoh over them in his sovereignty? who caused him to oppress them, that they might multiply. That God, the same one who rules and reigns today, he's the one that permitted the evil plan of Pharaoh to throw the boys into the river. He's the one who used Pharaoh's daughter to rescue Moses and eventually called this little boy to serve as the redeemer of his people. Do you need a reminder that he is still the same God today, here, now? Have you forgotten that he is working everything in history for the future that he intends for his people? 
The Bible tells us that when the fullness of time came, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The fullness of time didn't mean it was approaching the year zero. It means that everything in history had been weaving and working together in God's sovereign plan to accomplish exactly what he needed to be in place for the birth of his son. This includes nations that we've never heard of before, moving in countries we've never thought of before, bringing together things that occurred so that way everything would be in place for the birth of Jesus Christ. And even for his death, keep in mind the rise of the Roman Empire meant crucifixion was the preferred means of execution. Alexander the Great meant roads all over the known world in the Greek language, unifying peoples that otherwise would have been unable to communicate. All of these things happen in the fullness of time because God is working every detail in history, not just in the biblical narrative, but across the globe for his divine purpose. If the Lord permits this world to go on spinning for 10,000 more years, the church then will look exactly as he intends it to. Not one of his elect will fail to come to faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Do you need that reminder? That's a perspective of faith. What enables someone to act like Moses' parents against all odds? Putting a child in a basket in a river. It's faith. Faith in the person of God, his covenant-keeping nature, and faith in the providence of God, his fatherly care for his people. But we aren't fatalists. We live by faith because we trust in a God who does all things well. But we're not fatalists. I love the sovereignty and providence of God, and yet I still don't walk down the railroad track with a blindfold over my eyes. Because the Bible doesn't call us just to a life of faith, but a life of faith exercised in wisdom. And we live life wisely. Now, we know Moses' parents had faith, but look at the wisdom with which they approached this situation. They hid him, and when they could no longer hide him, she made an ark of bulrushes and covered it with bitumen and pitch and put the child in it and placed it among the reeds and even set his sister to watch to know what would happen to him. Rather than losing hope and just tossing their boy in the river or exposing him to the elements in the desert, his mother seeks to tenderly care for him in her last moments with him, not knowing that she'd ever see him again, and yet she still tries to care for him. They didn't give up on marriage because slavery was hard. They didn't forego having covenant children because the world was harsh. And when the bad times piled up, they didn't just expose their child to death. Rather, they exercised their faith with wisdom. Now, I don't know about you, but the river, probably the last place I would take my child if I were trying to preserve its life. Yeah, I mean the river, right? I mean, putting your child in a basket in the river, not what I would have considered as the, the top choice for preserving young Moses' life. The river is where he was headed if the Egyptians had gotten a hold of him. And yet here, in her wisdom, his mother places him there, perhaps because this is the place Pharaoh would have least expected the Hebrews to hide their children in the very river he was using to kill them. Now, this is worth noting. Uh, look with me uh, at verse 3. It tells us that Moses' mother, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket, and she daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she, there's the word, she put the child in it and 
placed it among the reeds. That's the same word, put in place. It's the exact same word. Our Bible com, uh, translators think we get bored if we saw the same word over and over again. But it's the same word, that put and placed. Do you know when the last time we saw that word was? Turn back to chapter 1. In verse 11, <clears throat> verse 10, they're afraid of the growing number of Israelites, and so they say, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape. Therefore, they put taskmasters over them to afflict them. So the last time, shrewdly, by the way, is the word for wisdom, the last time someone tried to exercise wisdom and put something in place, it was Pharaoh exercising fearful worldly wisdom and putting slave masters over the Israelites. And now we have, by faith, Moses' mother exercising godly women and, or wisdom and placing her son gently in the basket for salvation. God, it seems, is almost countering the evil of Pharaoh with the tender love of Moses' mother. We're to see that worldly wisdom, shrewdness, exercises harsh plans to get its own way. But godly wisdom exercises gentleness and peace in order to preserve life. Rather than setting taskmasters to oppress and kill, Moses' mother sets him in the river for redemption and for life. And this is the sort of wisdom that she has which is lacking in the church today. This is lacking in the church. It's the sort of wisdom that understands how God intends to keep His people. And it's by the simple, ordinary means of grace. God intends to keep His church preserved through the faithful administration of the ordinary means of grace. The Word of God read and preached. The right administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And by prayer. Worldly wisdom frets and fears that the church is all but doomed, and so it seeks to rescue it by gimmicks and by programs and by flash and by personality. If only we had this kind of leadership, if only we had this style of preaching, if only we had these kinds of events, then we would be successful, then we would be safe from obscurity. But God intends to grow His people corporately and individually in holiness through the ordinary means of grace. How simple. We don't need fancy plans and marketing schemes to see God's church succeed and grow into eternity. We have everything we need, the very Word of God read aloud and preached to His people, the sacraments administered rightly, baptizing new believers and our covenant children, partaking in the Lord's Supper, eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ and being reminded of the grace that's ours in Him and through prayer. Godly wisdom says, do it my way. Worldly wisdom says, I did it my way. How beneficial to our spiritual health to have such simple things given to us by God. More Bible, more opportunities for contemplating the covenant of grace, more time in prayer. What about you? What in your life are you trying to rescue by earthly wisdom rather than by godly wisdom? Is it your retirement account? Are you too busy investing and saving money to give God His due? Perhaps you find yourself robbing God of His tithe by applying worldly wisdom to your financial strategies. 
I'm not in a good place right now to be giving anything to the church. Uh, I'm coming up on retirement in a few years, and I need to make sure that all my accounts are balanced. What about your children? Are you trying to save them from appearing weird or from being annoyed at you for your insistence upon Sabbath worship? So you apply worldly wisdom and say things like, they won't have joy unless they have that electronic device, or they find life in playing that game, even if it's on a Sunday. And if I choose Christian education, they might seem strange to their peers. Rather than using biblical wisdom of discipline and instruction in the ways of the Lord, of correction for disobedience, of faithful family worship and corporate worship, of teaching them to love the Lord for all His goodness and for all His greatness. We need Christians who apply wisdom like Moses' mother and Moses' sister. Notice she stands at the riverbank, and she can't be too much older than Moses uh, based on what we read later on in the uh, books of Moses here. And she goes up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, should I go get a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you in verse 7? How brilliant is that? What a wise plan from this young girl. And so she goes and gets Moses' own mother to nurse him and care for him and have him for a time. And she even gets paid for it. What a blessing that God bestows on his people when they act in faith and wisdom. It's the wisdom of Moses' mother. It's the wisdom of Moses' sister that's on display in this text because of their great faith. Now, please don't miss this connection. Back in verse 22 of chapter 1, every boy that is born you will kill, but let the daughters live. There goes Pharaoh thinking he's got it all figured out. And yet in the very next chapter, we read of, the, of a daughter of a Levite and another daughter of a Levite whose faith and wisdom preserved the life of God's Redeemer. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? God's providence. A God-honoring perspective is informed by faith. It's exercised in wisdom, and it yields to God's providence. Now, Moses' mother might have known when Pharaoh's daughter went to bathe. Perhaps it was at the same time every day of the week, and she would come down to the river. Maybe she knew where in the river she would bathe, so she placed him just upstream of that, trusting that the little basket would float down by. We don't know that that's the case, but we do know that his mother yielded to providence. She placed him in the river and entrusted him in that moment to God's fatherly care. She had no idea that the third daughter in this text would be the one who saw him and who rescued him. The Egyptian, the, Pharaoh, the daughter of Pharaoh, who says to her servant girl to go fetch the basket, and when she saw it, it says she had pity on him. She took pity on him. That's kind of a shocking turn, in fact. Now, we might be presuming on a mother's tender love for children, but let's be honest. How many of you have been with a friend who recently gave birth, and after just a couple minutes of wriggling, screaming, thought, you know what, here you go. Take it back. Um, I have mine, or they're already grown. One of the great blessings of being a grandparent, I hope, is being able to leave the children with their parents. Uh, at some time, at some point, you can just unplug. And Pharaoh's daughter had no reason to have pity on this child. He was a Hebrew baby. In fact, she acknowledges that this is one of the Hebrew babies, she says. 
And Moses' mom, or his sister at least in this case, upon seeing Pharaoh's daughter, the daughter of the one who made the edict to kill all the baby boys, take a Hebrew baby boy out of the water and look at him crying, which is babies in their worst state. She wasn't looking at him cooing. He wasn't nursing. He was crying. His sister may have thought, this is it. He's done. She's going to throw him in the water. That's what her father commanded. That's what the people of Egypt are doing. He commanded all of his people to do it. One might have guessed that she would have just discarded him. But she didn't because God's providence had ordained all of these things to work out exactly according to the counsel of his perfect will. And this is what yielding to providence looks like. It means that even though we don't know the outcome, we know the one who has established the outcome of every circumstance. And everything he does is holy, wise, and powerful. Holy, there's no error in it. Wise, there's no better version of it. Powerful, there's no thwarting it. Whatever God designs to be accomplished will happen. And so yielding to providence means that we trust and we act in wisdom and then we wait on God and we rest in His goodness. That's all we can do. That's all we can do. We look to the God who keeps covenant, and we trust Him. We act in a manner that's in accordance with His will, and we wait to see what will happen. And all the while, we don't fret like a crying child, but rather like a weaned child in the lap of its mother. We're still and silent, and we wait. We rest in the Lord. Notice God's providence means that the most unexpected actors prove to be the most valuable tools in his hands. The Levites, the daughter, Pharaoh's daughter, her servant girls, unexpected actors on this stage. And sometimes we in our ignorance and judgment assume that certain people or certain kinds of people can't be used by God. Oh, he can't use her for anything. She's just a a homeschooling mom. But God uses her to raise faithful covenant children who love his word and his church. Now, we can't use him. He's not very impressive. He's not a natural leader. He's not very administrative or articulate. He's not much to look at, yet God uses him to preach the word with power and conviction, and many are brought to faith under his humble ministry. Look at all the unexceptional characters mentioned here. Again, this Levite guy, his wife from a Levite, the baby the daughter, Pharaoh's daughter, her servant girls, none of them should be on the pages of Scripture. And yet they're all used by God for the purpose of redeeming His people from their slavery in Egypt. Now, if this is how providence works, using the very instrument of death for the Hebrews to preserve the life of this one child, think about that for a second, using the very instrument of death four Hebrew boys to preserve the life of this one Hebrew boy. How much should we have confidence in this same hand of providence in our own lives? How much should we have confidence in this very same hand of providence? And how much should that inform our perspective in all circumstances, even in the most difficult and painful ones, even in the saddest ones, even in the most uncertain ones? 
Look what God did to protect Moses. The lesser redeemer. Remember, he's a type of Christ. He is the redeemer of Israel. That's what Stephen calls him in Acts chapter 7. It tells us that when Moses came out to his people later in life, which we'll read uh, later in this chapter, he assumed that they would realize he was bringing them salvation, but they didn't. They rejected him. But if God would protect this lesser redeemer, how much more will he go to great lengths to bring forth his ultimate redeemer? And not to rescue us from Egypt, but from hell. To save us and to bring us into his family. How much more will God do for you if he did not spare his own son? How can we ever doubt his goodness in every and all circumstances? That's how we live a life that's informed by faith, that's exercised in wisdom, and that yields to God's providence. So I ask you this morning, where do you need reminders of God's providence? As our shorter catechism says, his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and of all their actions. Where do you need that reminder today? Is it your difficult marriage? How could God have put me together with this person? Is it your difficult home? Is it your money or your health? Perhaps it's that prayer you've prayed 10,000 times for that person that still won't listen. Maybe it's your vocational choices. It doesn't seem like this is working out and I don't know how God will provide for me. Maybe it's with your decision to homeschool even though it seems beyond your capability to do so. Or the cost of Christian education, and I don't know where those dollars are going to come from. Or maybe it's with the continuation of faithful family worship, even though it seems like most nights the kids just aren't listening. God is still sovereign. He's still in control, and He's still on His throne, and He's still working all things together for His good. And so we, His people, yield to that. And we simply do what He expects of His covenant people by faith and with wisdom. In the end, we see that God's saving plan for his people will always triumph, that no evil can thwart his perfect will. Pharaoh stood by and watched the Hebrew baby boys being thrown into the river, and he thought he had won. He said, kill all the boys, I've got them. Look at him exercise his power. You know, Satan stood on the sidelines of Calvary and watched as his greatest enemy was killed. And he thought he had won. He was far more surprised at the resurrection than any of the angels in heaven were. He thought he had won. And just like God used the instrument of the Hebrew children's death to bring life and redemption to all the Hebrew people through Moses, so too did God use the instrument of Christ's death to bring life and redemption to all of his people. What an amazing turn of providence our God has done for us at the cross. He saved his people Israel through Moses, this little boy who was exposed who should have died. And he has saved us through the atoning work of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, who, though he died, was raised to life for our justification. And all we need to receive everything that he's offered us, the exodus from our sin and from death, is faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the simple gospel 
of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Simply placing your trust in Jesus is all you need for salvation. The gospel is so simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we prepare for the Lord's table, let's take a moment to look upon the emblems of our faith, His broken body for our sin, His shed blood for our life in the new covenant. And as we partake together, be reminded of His death for you and of His sure return, which will bring us not to the promised land of Israel, but to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in our great salvation. We ask, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts to faith, that as life gets difficult and things continue to be unknown to us, as we wait for your providence to be revealed, that we would act as those who trust you, who live wisely in a world that seems to be falling apart. Help us to wait and help us to rest in your person and in your good works. In Jesus' name, amen.